I'm a talkative person because I'm an SE dom. It's like my only world is the physical. My words are the only means of me getting out my meaning and intention. We'll see if I eat those words. She'll be entertaining others all the time. This is exactly where I wanted to go with it. <laughs> Do I not dare to this bump on a podcast with people can hear me. You guys ready to go? Yeah, Kate. Hello everyone and welcome back to the Literally No Subtext podcast. I am Kristen and I'm here with a very special guest. It is Dr. Ben Cotterill. Welcome, Doctor, to the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. Oh, it's a pleasure to have you here. So Dr. Ben is a lecturer at Clemson University in South Carolina, where he teaches courses relating to forensic psychology and personality. His research interests include personality development, the reliability and credibility of eyewitness testimony, and testing police procedures used with children. His book, Are Children Reliable Witnesses?, published by Palgrave Macmillan, was released in September and explores factors that impact children's eyewitness testimony, including personality. So I feel like it's going to be very valuable to have you on the podcast because I feel like a lot of people think that a lot of psychology professors wouldn't be pro MBTI. So when you reached out to me, I was like, oh, this is going to be awesome to have a chat with you. But before we dive into that, where did your interest in personality come from and how were you first introduced to MBTI? Sure. So I studied psychology because I was drawn to, I think, primarily understanding you know, why are people the way they are and what's the reasons for the differences between people. And so even before I really knew it, I was interested in the main um, components of the theories of personality and the personality literature. Um, And I really think it's the personality literature that has the answers to the most interesting questions in psychology. You know, is it mostly nature or nurture um, for the reason people are the way they are? Mm. Um, Do people have free will over their behavior? Um, And... The personality research also is relevant to every field of psychology. You know, after cognitive factors, it's usually the biggest prediction when it comes to predicting differences in behaviours and differences in outcomes. But in terms of being introduced to the official theories, it probably wasn't until my PhD. Um, I feel like during my undergrad, I got a pretty superficial um, coverage of the personality theories. You know, we covered briefly the Big Five and some of the other major, more contemporary models. But I certainly didn't learn about Jung or the cognitive functions during my undergrad. And then during my PhD, and my PhD thesis was quite broad, but part of it was to do with personality models. And then I was asked um, for my first major teaching assignment to do some personality teaching. I'd done some teaching assistance for research methods in some slightly less interesting classes, but I was really excited to do this because it was a course on individual differences and I had four weeks of personality, so it was a kind of subsection of the course. So I got given my um, topics to cover during those four weeks, but it was up to me to design the lectures and then deliver them. So I kind of took a week away from everything else in my PhD just to concentrate purely on this because I wanted to make sure I was teaching the personality theories authentically. So I was you know, reading the primary sources, reading Jung and Carol Rogers and so on, so, could I, so I could explain the theories and the, and the, and the words of the theorists to the students. Um, and, and I really loved teaching that because the students could get involved, you know, everyone can offer opinions on personality theories, because if you've interacted with people, then, Mm. you know, these theories are accounting to explain the main differences between people. So if you've had interactions with people, then you have opinions on how good the theories are and so on. So it was really fun being able to talk to students about that. And then I continued 
um, reading more and more about the main personality theorists and so on, because I knew I wanted to teach my own course on personality at some point. So it was probably during that stage I, I really learned more about MBTI and the cognitive functions. I'd came across the 16 personalities test much earlier. I think a friend had shared that with me and I'd kind of, I think, you know, looked at the results and then kind of put it aside and not given it too much attention. And then it wasn't really until I understood the theory behind MBTI and the cognitive functions that I, I really got interested in it. Yeah, awesome. So you teach a course at Clemson University titled Personality. In the course outline, it says uh, that you devote a section of your class to Jungian analytical psychology. So I was just wondering if you could share with us what do you cover in this portion of the unit? Sure. So we spend a week um, covering this. The first half talking about Jung more generally, and then the second half talking about the cognitive functions and the MBTI. So that may seem a kind of excessive proportion of the week, but I think actually it takes a long time to really understand the cognitive functions. And, oh, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> That's not excessive at all. <laughs> and it gives time for students as well to kind of play a bit with typing and to take some tests and so on. So during the first half, we, as I said, we talk about Jung. We start with Jung's background. You know, a lot of the early personality theorists had quite unusual childhoods and a lot of them felt very misplaced in the world and very misunderstood. And I think in part the personality theories they came up with were in part their attempt to try to understand what makes them different and what's the reasons for the differences in people. And Jung's no exception. He uh, was quite a lonely child and was quite sick, um, was prone to fainting and dizzy spells and was bullied relentlessly and his parents would fight non-stop at home um, and he would hide up in the attic to get away from his parents fighting and he says he um, had made himself a doll at some point and for a proportion of his childhood that doll was his only friend so um, he also says that he was afraid and confused by his mother he says his mother was kind of two personalities in one body one moment she would be very warm and loving and then the next she would be very kind of volatile and unpredictable so you know, once you understand all of that, I think you can then kind of get some appreciation for what Jung was trying to understand and maybe the main contributors to personality and the aspects of personality he was most interested in. And then we talk about Jung's relationship with Freud. And then I, I talk then also about um, Sabina Spielrein, who, you know, not many people know, and those who do know her know she was a patient of Jung and a patient he had an affair with. You know, that proportion of her life is well documented and there's a good movie on it called The Dangerous Method with Keira Knightley as Sabina Spielrein and uh, Michael Fassbender plays um, Carol Jung. Ah. But, you know, she was much more than just Jung's patient. After being his patient, she went on to become a psychologist in her own right and she helped Jung develop aspects of his theory and then she also helped Freud develop aspects of his. And then she went to help Piaget with his research methods when he developed the cognitive stages of child development and then she went to Russia and she helped Lev Vygotsky in his developmental theory so you know these are four psychologists that pretty much every psychology major has heard of but yet none of them probably have mostly heard of um, Sabina Spielrein so I see it as a good opportunity to talk about her then and then afterwards we talk about Jung's conceptualization of the psyche and the components of it so you know the collective unconscious the anima the animus the shadow and what he meant when he talks about individuation in which these components become conscious and one tries to reach some balance. So men accepting some of the more stereotypical 
feminine aspects of their personality and women accepting some of the more stereotypically masculine aspects of their personality. And then the shadow is really the kind of darker side of one's personality. And Jung said if this doesn't become conscious and that one is able to kind of master it and accept it and have some control over it, then it will control the person. And then we talk about the idea of archetypes and you know how Jung study, studied all of this was interesting because unlike Freud and a lot of the other psychologists at that time, he, he, Jung travelled a lot and what he explored was you know, there was commonalities to societies that predated their, their ability to communicate with one another. Um, so wherever he went, there were stories of good and evil and there was stories of creation and there was um, stories of monsters that resided in the dark. And so Jung believed that this was because of our shared evolutionary history, that we've all come into the world predisposed to form certain symbols and to live out certain behaviours. And so, you know, for a time, you know, people did disappear when they went into the shadows. And so it makes sense that people came up with stories of monsters to explain that. And people want to understand the world around them. So um, that's why people have focused on trying to understand the origins of creation in multiple parts of the world and so on. So, you know, I cover that, the aspects of the psyche, and then we talk about the cognitive functions and the the, the tests like the Myers-Briggs. Wow. And how do you find that the the students receive that like at what point do they start to get more interested i assume that at the beginning they're all a bit like oh yeah yeah myers-briggs sure sure no actually i think students surprisingly really quite like the myers-briggs and i think they appreciate even more when we talk about the cognitive functions and so on um but even even when i warn students about the flaws of 16 personalities website for example students still really like that i think because it's so descriptive um Mm. And it's easy to kind of utilize what it's talking about, or at least to conceptualize it. Whereas, you know, the big five in comparison gives you a a percentile, so you're more extroverted than 60% of the population. And then it's harder to actually conceptualize what's the implications of that. Mm. Whereas if you have a type and a description of that type, it's easier, I think, for students to digest. And by the end of the course, do you find that most of your students have quite a comprehensible understanding of Myers-Briggs and have seen its value and are excited to utilize the tool in their lives or is it more just kind of like oh this was interesting now it's because in my experience once I learned about Myers-Briggs there was no going back especially the cognitive functions so I don't know if students get that invested in the cognitive functions and so on Mm. um but for example the students do a presentation at the end of the semester in which they have to explain a fictional character from a movie or a book using some of the theories we've discussed. Oh, cool. Um, and the Myers-Briggs is quite a, a popular one, um, or Jung's theory is quite a popular one during that um, presentation. So I think the students do like um, the Myers-Briggs. Yeah, awesome. And so you mentioned that your your course does involve them taking a personality assessment. Um, which one, out of interest, have you got them to take? And have you found a test slash assessment that you believe is too, is more accurate or reliable than others? So if we're talking about personality more broadly, there's lots of big five um, instruments that are you know, pretty good in terms of the reliability measures we have and validity. Mm. Uh, the big five aspects scale is my favorite, which was developed by Colin de Young and colleagues. And so it splits each of the big five into two aspects. And so there's 10 aspects being measured. Yeah. 
the benefit of that from a research point of view is that we get more predictive power um, and some things that aren't predictable at the big five level are predictable at the aspect level and so for example some researchers when looking for an association between personality and political values have looked to see if agreeableness is connected to um, political orientation and usually that's insignificant results but if we break agreeableness, agreeableness down into the aspect level which is compassion and politeness then there is some predictive power people who are higher in politeness typically endorse more conservative values and people who are higher in compassion typically endorse more liberal or left-leaning values. So that's one of the reasons why I like the big five aspects scale. In terms of questionnaires for the Mars-Briggs, I don't think there is many good ones. I use one by Bo Ree, um, who has a textbook on personality theories and that's just one of the resources that come with it. A big issue with a lot of the questionnaires designed to measure the, the Myers-Briggs is that, you know, when, when we do a personality questionnaire, there's a normal distribution, right? Most people score near the middle and the, on the questionnaire. Very few people score at the extreme ends. And what a lot of the Myers-Briggs questionnaires do is they'll just split the sample um, down the middle. And so if you do that, then participants who score quite close to the middle, which is most of them, only have to score slightly different next time they do the test in order to get a different type. So a questionnaire that can measure the cognitive functions rather than just you know which side of this average do participants fall upon would be a better questionnaire, but you know they're harder for from a research point of view. Yeah, interesting. So why do you think that MBTI receives such criticism from the psychology community? And in your opinion, is it valid criticism? Like what could they be missing? Certainly, I think a lot of um, members of the psychology community don't understand the theory behind the Myers-Briggs about the cognitive functions. Um, and, you know, I just said some flaws with the questionnaires, for example, but there are issues with the questionnaires. It doesn't necessarily mean there's flaws with the theory, right? Because these, these questionnaires are being designed to try and conceptualise the, the, the theory that Jung had of the cognitive functions um, and there might be issues with the questionnaires in terms of reliability and validity, but that doesn't necessarily mean that the theory is um, flawed. So I think, first of all, a lot of members of the psychology community don't see that. They just see that this is a system which is a, you know, a dichotomy, putting people as either extrovert or introvert and so on. And psychologists largely try to move away from that and to use a dimension so that people fall somewhere on a spectrum rather than splitting people into categories. And I do think... You know, I think some of the criticism is valid because in psychology, the things we're trying to measure are very difficult to measure. And so it's important we are rigorous in our measurements of reliability and validity, that the results are stable across time um, and that we can use different measurements that are all designed to measure the same thing and get the same results and that they're actually predictive of differences in real world behavior. And so a lot of the questionnaires designed to measure the Myers-Briggs, I don't think quite come up to power on some of those um, reliability measurements. Mm. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And so in your personal opinion, what is the value of MBTI and its applicability? Like, do you use, do you find yourself, I guess, typing people in your own life or noticing cognitive functions? Does it help you in your relationships? I find myself typing people all the time. Yeah, even when reading. <laughs> okay. <laughs> even, Relatable. even when reading a book or watching a movie, I'm always 
trying to wonder what type these characters are. Yeah. No, I, I think there's a lot of value in it in t- trying to understand your own personality and the personality of people around you. I just think some of the implications for research purposes are more limited, um, especially when there's good alternatives like the Big Five. But I think, you know, for lay people, for example, who want to understand, you know, just you know, some of their own characteristics and some of the, the other characteristics of other people, it can be a good tool to then help with communication, for example, and, you know, understanding that some people see things differently than you do. So I think there is still a lot of utility in the Marisbrig. Yeah, absolutely. And what you've said is bang on. That's how I find it's really helpful as well. Understanding the difference between how people perceive things and like, that can really help with communication, coming to understand people in like even just things like arguments where you could be missing each other, which is something, a message I try to plug on my channel. So I'm glad that we're on the same page with that. Good. You've mentioned a few times the big five mm. and you've said that it's more reliable in some ways. So could you in your own words sort of explain the difference between MBTI and big, the big five, just for those who aren't familiar, how each is useful and where the strengths and weaknesses of each lie? Okay, sure. So uh, the big five is the model that says there's five main dimensions to personality openness conscientiousness extroversion agreeableness and neuroticism neuroticism being the likelihood of one experiencing negative emotion from depression to anxiety but what's important to understand about the big five is it's not arisen out of theory no one predicted that you know this was the five main areas of personality um, or that there was only five it's the result of over 100 years of personality research and giving out personality questionnaires to a large um, samples of participants and then undergoing factor analysis. So it started with Gordon Alpert, who listed every adjective in the dictionary, so about 18,000 words. And the idea there was that you know, if there are significant differences um, between people, then in our language, we will have came up with words to describe those differences And then, you know, it wasn't until about the 60s or the 70s, about the late 60s, that we got to a point where we had reduced the list enough that it was then becoming clear that there was these five clusters. So, you know, to describe factor analysis, you know, if you give someone a questionnaire and one of the items is, do you describe yourself as a happy person? And one of the items is, do you laugh a lot? One of the items is, do you smile a lot? Then unsurprisingly, someone who's um, saying yes to one of these items will likely be saying yes to the other two as well. And so they're reflective of the same underlying structure. And so that's what factor analysis does. It kind of clusters together all of the items on the scale that's common. So, for example, people who say they're cooperative also typically say they're compliant and also typically say they're polite and typically say they're agreeable. And so that cluster has formed agreeableness. But agreeableness is just the label. You know, it's it's impossible to describe the complexity of these clusters with just one word. You know, you can be agreeable in some ways and not agreeable in other ways. And some of the benefits of the Big Five is that, you know, this factor analysis, even using questionnaires not designed to measure the Big Five, still reveal five clusters. So, for example, if we take items from Raymond Cattell's 16 personality questionnaire and Hans Eisenach's personality questionnaire and the state trait anxiety questionnaire and we have a large sample of participants complete all of these items then even the results of these questionnaires will form um, the five clusters if there's a large enough number of items and then also 
you know, one of the main, the, really the biggest benefit of the big five is the consistent um, predictions that are found. So, for example, when examining the correlation between conscientiousness, one of the big five, and exam results across samples and across measurements and across studies, reliably we have a correlation that's about 0.4, which means it's accounting for about 16% of the variance. And then obviously other factors like IQ and how much the student likes the subject and so on is explaining the other um, 84% of the variance. But it's a consistent finding that's found again and again, which you know gives us more confidence in the fact that this is actually predicting real world differences. And the big five, even when we follow up with participants decades later, is relatively stable. Openness and extroversion especially are very stable across the lifespan. Agreeableness tends to increase gradually across the lifespan and so does conscientiousness and neuroticism typically decreases gradually. But none of that's too surprising, you know, as people mature, they should develop um, better ways of getting along with people and staying motivated on tasks and how to deal with their negative emotions. So all of that's some of the benefits of the Big Five. Um, The Big Five also seem to emerge early when looking at characteristics of temperament. So... Positive emotion, for example, is somewhat predictive of later extroversion, even in infancy. Negative affect and social inhibition predict later neuroticism. Epiphyl control, which is how much an infant can stay on a task without being distracted, predicts later conscientiousness. And then there's some biological correlates as well. So with the exception of conscientiousness, there's a biological model for each of the big five. Um, So, for example, people higher in agreeableness typically typically have lower testosterone levels. People who are higher in extroversion typically have more dopamine receptors and a more active behavioral approach system, meaning they're more sensitive to cues for rewards. Um, People higher in neuroticism typically have a more active fight-flight system and behavioral inhibition system, so they're more responsive to cues for punishment. And then openness to correlates with dopamine receptors that are to do with novelty seeking, for example. So again, all of that just kind of adds confidence in the idea that we're actually measuring something that's, that's real in a sense. Wow. Um, in terms of overlap between the Big Five and the Myers-Briggs, um, th- there is quite a, a large degree of overlap. Extroversion in the Big Five correlates, unsurprisingly, with the extroversion-introversion dichotomy. So you know, if you're an extrovert, you typically score higher in extroversion. Well, it's maybe a little bit surprising, actually, because um, Jung's conceptualization of introversion and extroversion is very different from our own um, contemporary conceptualization of it. But even very early um, questionnaires based on his theory still correlate very strongly with today's extroversion skills. Openness in the Big Five correlates with the intuitive sensing dichotomy, so intuitive types typically score higher in openness. Not too surprising, because... Openness is to do with an interest in ideas and enjoying abstract thinking um, and being more drawn to the unconventional. Conscientiousness in the Big Five correlates with the judging-perceiving dichotomy. So if you're higher in conscientiousness, you're more likely to be a judging type. Again, maybe not too surprising because people higher in conscientiousness are typically more focused on the future. They're typically more um, organized and disciplined and socially responsible but also a lot of it's to do with being willing to 
sacrifice the present for the future. And then agreeableness correlates with the thinking feelings economy, but to a much lesser extent, the other correlations are strong, whereas this one's moderate. And I, I think the reason for that is because only extroverted feeling is really to do with agreeableness. You know, extroverted feeling has some commonalities, being sensitive to the feelings of others and using that as a kind of guide on your own behavior. But I don't think introverted feeling is really covered by the big five at all. I think that's maybe the reason as to why that correlation is weaker. And, you know, that's one of the criticisms of the big five. It probably doesn't capture all aspects of personality, especially if there's aspects that are more subtle and maybe haven't arisen as part of our everyday language, then it might not be included in some of the questionnaires that have led to the big five. And, and when I think about it, it is hard, I think, to come up with adjectives that describe someone who uses introverted feeling. So maybe that's one of the reasons as to why that's been neglected. Yeah, and the uh, 16personalities.com website, um, you know, they've added that extra letter to correlate to the fifth category of the big five. Is that right? Neuroticism, yeah. That's basically what it is. Yeah, interesting. And how do you feel about the fact that that is happening, that the 16 personalities is like claiming MBTI to be basically what the big five is? Or do you think it's not as harmful as we might think it is? I don't think it's too harmful. I mean, it just has flaws in the in the methods because it's assuming large between group differences and no within group differences, even though, like I said before, most people score near the middle ground. And so actually, um, when you use a, a system like the 16 personalities website, that's one of the reasons as to why there's poor reliability, because someone only has to answer slightly different next time and then they get a different type. Yeah, that's right. So do you generally recommend to, I guess, your students, do you recommend to utilize the big five model more so than the cognitive functions? Or I mean, maybe, maybe your role as a professor isn't to recommend such things. <laughs> Naturally, I'm like putting the F qualifier, like being a teacher, I'd want to be like, you should do this with your life and use this. It helps you with your relationships. <laughs> but I guess that's not your role, I suppose. And I'm sure you'd have people of different types as your students, like gravitating towards different theories. For sure. Part of what I love is that students come up with their own opinions and you know, I see it as my job to just try and sell each of the theories as best as I can. And then it's really up to the students. You know, I might guide them in some of the ways in which we might evaluate a theory, but it's really up to them ultimately to decide on the merits of the theory at the end. Mm. But if I have students in my lab, for example, I would typically recommend a big five questionnaire for research purposes. Oh, of course. Uh, we do do some studies with the Myers-Briggs, but it's typically more to, I don't know, fulfill my own curiosity rather than have you know, large research implications. Yeah, interesting. It's a very, very hard thing to like quantify in life. It's, yeah, because it's so, does not dictate behavior across the board. There are just so many, you know, Fs who can appear as Ts depending on the circumstance. And yeah, it's so not prescriptive in terms of like, here's your Myers-Briggs type and therefore you should act this way or you this will happen in your this certain behavior or this certain circumstance will happen in 100% of your re- relationships. Therefore, you can use this Myers-Briggs type to do this, like act in this way at this time. It's so not like helpful for that. It's more just like, how am, how am I approaching the world using these tools that I know I have? How am I aware of my own perceptive and judgment tools and how can I be aware of those of others? But, you know... Yeah, when we start to when we start to put too much emphasis on it, I think, yeah, it can be in terms of like in a prescriptive way, it can be quite harmful. So, yeah, this is very interesting what you're saying. 
because obviously I've not done this this level of research. <laughs> so you sent me one of your research papers called The Relationship Between Psychological Birth Order Position and Personality Type, um, in which you conducted a study on the correlation between psychological birth order and personality type using a pool of 378 online participants to gather your data. And one of your findings was that only children, which also includes children who do not have siblings less than five years younger or older, have a significantly increased chance of being introverts in comparison to other birth order positions, whereas middle children have a significantly decreased chance of being introverts than other birth order positions. So could you explain in your own words why you think it is that only children are more likely to be introverts and middle children are more likely to be extroverts? Yeah. Um, So first of all, what I did with that study is, like you say, I was concentrated on the psychological birth order that one adopts. So that's why I use those rules um, that you have to have siblings within five years to, for example, count as a a middle child and Mm. you're counted as an only child um, if you don't have siblings within a five-year gap. Because, well, that's what Alfred Adler intended, who came up originally with the idea of birth order theory. And most of the birth order research is really very bad, lazy research. It's just seeing what someone's ordinal birth order position is and then seeing if there's a correlation between that and some personality traits. And they don't account for someone who's maybe only one year older than a sibling versus 10 years older than their sibling. That's you know counted as the same. And that's why most of that research has found insignificant findings. So I was quite happy in doing this um, research design. I did find some significant findings. Um, and I think they're intuitive with you know what makes sense. You know, as someone who's not used to having um, constant social interactions with peers their own age because they don't have any siblings, might then, you know, grow more accustomed to their own company and then find more enjoyment earlier on in solitary tasks. So, you know, one theory as to explain the findings is that sibling relationships are sort of practice for later peer relationships. And then, you know, on the other side of that, a middle child, for example, will be used to um, constant social interaction, especially if they have siblings within five years um, of their age on both sides. And so it makes sense that they would grow up being more used to that level of social interaction and seeking it out in other situations to explain why they're more extroverted. I had a thought when I was reading your paper, which was that suggesting that MBTI is linked to birth order in some way seems to imply that our MBTI types are decided and developed over time rather than implanted into our inherent personality. Now, in my experience, I've been able to, I have nieces and a nephew, and I've been able to identify different cognitive functional tendencies in those children from about the age of three. Is this to say that birth order subconsciously affects a child's personality as early as that, or rather that MBTI type can change over time based on the effects of where they lie in the birth order? Yeah, so first of all, I'd say I don't think Myers-Briggs captures all aspects of personality, and I think some aspects take longer to develop than others. So, for example, you know, later aggression and antisocial behavior um, can be predicted when examining participants around five years of age, but before that, it's not predictive, it's not stable. You know, if we code for overt aggression prior to five, then there's only a one in eight chance that that participant will have a kind of stable level of aggression. Whereas it's thought that once one gets to five, then they're 
gone to school and they're interacting with peers and so if they're still overtly aggressive then they'll be rejected by the peer group and that's one theory as to why um, aggression at that point becomes stable. And then there's aspects of neuroticism such as low self-esteem and anxiety that don't peak until the teenage years and then become relatively stable at that point. But in terms of the cognitive function preferences, you know, Jung said that the preference is developed fairly early on and then it becomes more and more of a preference the more one uses it. And so by about middle childhood, the preference will be quite strong. But he also believed that personality continues to develop across the lifespan, um, at least to some extent. He said by um, middle age, one tries to reach a level of balance, right? So for, Jung described himself as an introvert for most of his life. But at the end of his life, he said he was no longer an introvert. He thought he reached a balance between introversion and extroversion. But he thought only a very small minority of people get to that level of balance. In terms of then, in what, how early in age the cognitive functions can be identified, um, you know, I don't know of any research studies on that. You know, we have a number of studies, for example, that are followed up on the big five scores years and years later, but I don't know of any studies on that scale for the Myers-Briggs. So I can really just kind of use my own guesses and observations. So, you know, in my experience, for example, I'm quite a textbook INFJ. Do, do I think you could have seen my cognitive functions when I was a child? I think the more I think about it, I think yes. I think my extroverted feeling was always clear. I was always quite sensitive to other people's feelings and I was quite vocal for a young child as a, to be an introvert, but I was really drawn to ideas and I wanted to understand something quite obsessively before understanding something else. So I think if you were well ver versed in the cognitive functions, you probably could identify that as introverted intuition. But just because that's true in my own experience, I, I don't know if that's true for others. So I'm interested when you say you can identify cognitive functions as early as three. It just is some cognitive functions easier to detect than others, and does age have an impact on that? Yeah, I mean, me personally, having done obviously, as if I need to qualify, no research on this, <laughs> aside from just my uh, observation of things. Yeah, I, I find with the extroverted, the extroverted uh, cognitive functions, especially at a young age where a child is operating like predominantly in that function I guess um and I just find generally like when someone's using an extroverted function first they're just easier to type in general because it's like presenting so obviously but yeah I'm thinking of two particular uh young children I know where it's quite obvious that one of them is engaging in in her play in, in her interaction with the world in what she's drawn to in the room with uh where the where the energy is in like the activities and the sense data, like she'll happily ignore people. It's more just where, where the energy is or what's a fun thing she can play with. You know, she'll pick up like a, a, a fruit just off the floor and eat it because she wants to know what it tastes like. She'll want to jump over that thing over there, you know. And then another child I'm thinking of, same age, sorry, not same age, a year and a half older. Yeah, she, she is drawn to wherever the energy is happening within the people in the room. So she's always focused on where, so what I'm talking about, I've, I noticed this difference from about the age when they were three and four respectively. But yeah, the second child was very like attuned to when even an adult felt upset or was left out, she would go and approach the adult and say like, how are you today? Whereas, you know, the former child would just barge past an adult 
to go play with something. And I just, in my, in my head, I was like, okay, you can, you can see what tools these children are bringing to the table here. And it just felt like an S E F E extroverted sensing, maybe extroverted feeling difference there. So that's the kind of thing I'm talking about. Okay. Yeah. No, it's really interesting. Yeah. 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 And that's, that's been consistent behavior that I've noticed as well. Like, cause you know, obviously the former child could have moments where she's also talking to people and, but the energy and the reason, the reason for which she's doing it is very different. It's not for a sense of connection. It's for a sense of fun as, but the sec- the latter child does it for a sense of connection, like consistently. So yeah, that's what I mean when I say you can see those differences. And it'll be interesting to continue those observations and see if they remain stable as well. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, for sure. It's very fascinating to me. Um, so one of the other findings that you had in your paper was that middle children have a significantly increased chance of being feelers than all other birth order positions. And you detail the reasons for why this is in the paper, which I'll link in the show notes of this episode. But I wonder if you could explain the reasons for why this might be in your own words. Sure. Uh, so it ties in with some of the other birth order proponent theorists who have said that the middle child is more likely to be a peacemaker because they're used to compromise. They may have had to deal with you know, different needs from the older child and the younger child, and then they're being a compromise. And there is also some argument that they're more likely to be concerned by injustice because they, in some cases, feel like they've been treated unjustly themselves because you know, the older sibling typically has more privileges and the younger child might be more likely to be spoiled and be the centre of attention. And so they might feel somewhat, somewhat overlooked. And there is some research to back that they're more overrepresented amongst some jobs to do with relations. So ambassadors, for example, and members of the Peace Corp and, you know, some roles in which the goal might be to fight for the justice of others. So that, that was really just the post-talk explanation I came up with that I think fits with some of the other arguments. But if I can go back to something you said earlier when you said um, does birth order subconsciously affect personality? I think that is a good way of thinking about it. I think it's not the case that birth order causes personality for example. I think it does help choose preferences perhaps or make those preferences stronger. So if one's already predisposed for introversion for example then they might develop that a preference for that even stronger and even earlier in age if they have no other siblings. And, and so you can think other manifestations of that as well. So for example, a only child, you know, they know they can leave their toys as they want and no one's going to come around and mess them up. Whereas uh, a sibling who has, a, a child who has siblings close to them in age might mess up their toys. And so they might grow up being more used to untidiness and not being able to leave things perfectly and come back to them just as they left them and so an only child might be more used to well they might be they might have a greater preference for perfectionism because it's just something that's you know what they're used to whereas a first born for example if they're told by their parents you know to teach their younger siblings this or to supervise this um, or to make sure they do this then they're more used to a kind of authority position and there is some research that suggests firstborns are more overrepresented amongst authority positions. But of course, a lot of things can affect how that manifests itself, right? If one um, is more tyrannical when giving orders or if they're, you know, more of a kind of caring teacher kind of figure. And so there's a lot of factors such as the sibling relationships and the parenting styles and so on that can kind of mediate these effects. Mm. 
Very interesting. Were there any other particularly interesting findings that you found in your paper that you wanted to mention? No, it, it was just that only children were more likely to be introverted and middle children were more likely to be extroverted and feelers. Yeah, it was very interesting reading that because it was just something I'd never thought about, like birth order. I was like comparing it to, I was comparing it to all the families that I know in my life. I was like, oh, is this the case here? It was, it was fascinating. So I'm glad that I was able to read it. And I'm glad that there are people out there like yourself doing this kind of research. One other question I wanted to ask that was just interesting to me um, was I wanted to touch on something else that you said in your paper, which was that children with opposite sex siblings are significantly more likely to be competent at dating the opposite sex in adolescence. And I think this wasn't a finding of yours. I think you were referencing someone else who, um, who found that. You know, I think that personality and dating is a whole other topic, but I was just wondering if you could shed light on your thoughts as to how important understanding the opposite sex is when it comes to success, quote unquote, in dating and how growing up with someone of the opposite sex might affect this. Sure. So that was um, done by a researcher at Penn State. And uh, it was an interesting study because it was a longitudinal study and the, the participants were followed up throughout their entire teenage years from 12 until 20. And they were continuously asked to rate um, how competent they felt they were in dating, but also how they're uh, how close they were to their siblings. And so half of the participants had opposite um, sex siblings only, and half of the participants had same sex siblings only. And there was a strong correlation between dating competence and positive sibling relationships only amongst the um, participants who had opposite sex siblings, not for the same sex siblings. And so the researchers of that study theorized that the reason for that was because because of their um, positive sibling relationships, they had someone they could turn to for advice to help them with um, dating and so on. And based upon the findings they had, that's a good explanation. But I think also it's probably broader than that in that um, if someone has a opposite sex sibling close to them in age, then they just become more familiar with the opposite sex and the opposite sex seems more relatable at earlier an age. And so I just used that really to mirror my own findings and that those who have siblings were more likely to be extroverted with their peers, whereas those who didn't were more likely to be introverted. So again, it's just kind of tying into this idea that sibling relationships are somewhat of a tryout for later relationships. But, but I also want to be clear that my findings in terms of birth order affecting personality were really quite small. Um, you know, it accounts for about less than 3% of the variance. And so it, you know, it's, it's one small impactor of personality, but there's many impactors of personality. Mm, there's so many. And I think that's important to understand because I think we can tend to over-categorize and try to use these tools to really understand everything about every person in our lives. But it's important to understand there's multiple factors and there's so much nuance. So... Yeah, this has been a really fascinating conversation. It's been really valuable to have your research and you talk about your research and your insights. Final question, if you could give just one message to people about what they should keep in mind when utilizing these personality tools, maybe Myers-Briggs specifically, what, what, what advice would you give? I think a lot of it you've touched on, you know, don't take it too seriously and don't use it too rigidly um, and really just use it as a tool to help with communication and to help, you know, understand where other people are coming from and to help build relationships yeah awesome good message well thank you so much for coming on dr ben 
It's been a pleasure. No, no, it's been the pleasure's been mine. It's been great. I've been, you know, watching your videos for a long time, so it's it's very cool to be here. It's been a lot of fun. Thanks. Yeah, awesome for sure. And um, I will link your website in the show notes for anyone interested in checking out your papers. And until next time, see you later. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Literally No Subtext podcast. I've left a link to Dr. Cotterell's website as well as links to other resources he mentioned in the show notes of this episode. So please be sure to check those out if they piqued your interest. If you like this episode, please share it with your friends or I'd really appreciate if you could drop us a rating if you're on a podcast platform that allows ratings. If you'd like to check out more of my work with personality type and MBTI, head on over to my YouTube channel, Dear Kristen, or follow my Instagram page at dear.kristen, that's K-R-I-S-T. And if you'd like to submit a question for an episode of the podcast, head on over to the contact section of my website, hellodearkristen.com, and I'll be sure to check out your submission. Thanks again for listening, guys, and I'll catch you later.